Welcome back to Sci-Fi and Fantasy Read Along. I am ATN. And I'm Yule. And I'm DM Phil. All right. Hey, guys. Welcome to the show. We're about to talk about Chapter 17. It's the first chapter of Book 6, entitled The City of Blue Fire. And this is a shorty, so we're we're on it, right? We're ready for this. Yeah, we're going to do it. Isn't it getting good? I mean, do you guys feel it? The boil is definitely coming to the surface. Is this a skin problem you're not telling me about? Is that <laughs> I'm just saying I'm, I'm I'm anticipating this climax. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. In our last episode, Lorne and Tool entered the Tyrant's Barrow, Sari took a new name, and Perrin's sword was tested against Rivy Lances. Okay, so hey Philip, I think it was two chapters ago. You were like, nah, this is poopy. Yeah. That- and then it was followed up, and you were like, it's a little bit better now that I've read the following chapter. How'd you feel about this one? Again, it's building up again. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just starting. It's building right? up again. Yeah, just to go back to two chapters ago, it was like a false summit, right? You're climbing this mountain, yeah. right? And you're like, yeah. oh, there's the top. And you get there, and you're like, oh, that's not the top. And You still have a long and, way Yeah, to go. and then you have to go down, and then you have to go up again. Um, so yeah, I guess I was disappointed, but in hindsight, it wasn't bad. It's just, I had high expectations that were uh, baseless or unfounded. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It makes great sense. What about you, Yule? Uh, I'm enjoying this quite a, quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> quite, quite much I am. Grammar. Uh, yeah. Good. That's have cool. you heard of, have you heard of Grammarly? Gra- yes, I, I have. think they could help you, Yule. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an excellent uh, it's an excellent chapter that we're on right now. I I thought it was good. Um, I'm enjoying all of it. It's it's okay. It's flowing seamlessly. I'm understanding things a little bit more. I'm now beginning to understand a little bit more of the you know the nuances or the 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 bits and pieces of the book. Whereas before, you know, you kind of just run over it to finish it. Some people are better at it than I am. You know. Sure. remembering recapturing all the things that are going on yep uh bravo for you <laughs> well um as i was going through my notes and preparing for today's recording i noticed a little something and i'm going to spring it on you when we get there but um <laughs> it's, uh, i can't wait it's i was so excited when i found it i was like oh my god so be prepared hold on to, do you guys have depends do you know what i'm talking about oh Put them on. Put them on. Because you're going to poopy. <laughs> okay. I'm sitting, on a, All right. I'm sitting on a towel conveniently, so that should catch most of it. <laughs> no, I know what it is. You've got, uh, you have one of those chairs like an idiocracy. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yes. And there's like a, well, it's not a bucket, but yeah. It's a toilet recliner. I should seriously invent that because to me it makes so much sense. Like, if you're playing video games and you just don't want to leave, I mean, it's just. No. No. No, it's all bad. It's all bad. I mean, just... Why don't you just get a catheter, then? Just go straight for that. You gotta put that in. It doesn't just... It doesn't just, like, hoover away your your waist, you know? It's like you insert a catheter. Yeah, I'll... In in your pee-pee. I'll pass. It goes in. (laughs) Thank you. Shiver. The science lesson from ATN. Hey, I'm excited. I'm sorry. Anyway, let's get started, though. Let's talk about the preamble for the book. Gotcha. This is called Rumor Born. It was written by Fisher. And what did you guys what'd you guys pull out of that? I, I thought it was just kind of a slightly nebulous 
recap of everything that's been going on in Jerusalem to date. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good idea. Um, I do too. I yeah. think that's pretty concise. Nicely put, Philip. Um, it mentions the eel and his thousand agents. It mentions the claw. It mentions a dragon. Um, it mentions the night of blood when all the assassins were killed. And a, a masked highborn woman who's about to throw a big party. Uh, let's move on to the preamble for chapter 17. You will, what about, what, give it to me. Philip gave us the last one. You give me this one. Oh, thanks. This one's harder. <laughs> yeah, this one. All right, so this is written by Silver Fox. No. No what? It is, it is an attribution to something that Silver Fox said, okay. written written down by Herloshell, the outrider oh, of the Sixth Army, Very who's good. up there with Caladan Brood. Dude, it's all about Dragnapur, right? I think so. Well, yeah. I think I think I, it's I, I think it's Rake plus Dragon Pour together, and Moon Spawn and blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah that definitely. Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you guys a question because there was one thing about that that I was kind of uh, I, I didn't really understand. It says that few can see the dark hand holding aloft the splinter. Now I take that to mean the sword, but I know nothing about how that sword was forged, so I'm. I'm forced to ask the question, if it's a splinter, does that mean it came from something larger? Is it a piece of something that's bigger? I mean, we don't know, right? Uh, but that's yeah. that's how I feel after reading that. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I, th- I just thought the splinter was a metaphor for the sword. Maybe. It's a weird word to choose either way. Let's dive into the chapter, shall we? Yes. All right, so Ralic Nam is heading for the Phoenix Inn, and he gets accosted by Meese, who steps out of the shadows and is like, Ralic, Ralic, there's a guy inside. He's asking about you by name. Yeah, Meese is uh, interested in Ralic and makes no uh, no bones about I mean, she... uh-uh, no puns. <laughs> She's a little forward about it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but that's old news, right? Ralph's sure. known about this all along, and he's never acted on it. So why would he now? So just right. to, 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 I'll bring this up again later. But they did describe Meese as a large, beefy woman, and uh, which is fine. I just want I want to mention it now for for later. Okay, I would like to mention that this is the first time that Meese has been described to us. Yes, that is correct. Oh, wasn't she one right. of the one beating the boy who was hanging upside down? Yeah. Okay. But we got no physical description of her. No, no. Until now. So Ralik is like, okay, so tell me about this guy. And she, she appraises this guy as a soldier out of uniform. And then Ralik's like, okay, give me a minute. And then he goes inside. So there's this nondescript man sitting at Krupp's table. Ralik spots him and like makes eye contact and heads over. Like he looks at him and waits till the dude sees him. Sees eye Ralik, And then he goes on over. Right. Is it love? No, but it, well, another thing that happens is like the people part for Ralic, and it's like for the first time he noticed that they, they this happens many a time, I guess. You know, how could he never have noticed that before? I mean, people just like get out of his way. I don't know, but I remember it being described in an earlier chapter yeah. that people were getting out of his way. So, who is this guy sitting at Krupp's table? This is is this Circle Breaker? I don't know. I, I have a question. He introduces himself as an agent of the eel. And that's, I mean, that, that could be Circle Breaker for sure. And that was like the first thing I thought. 
but he's out of uniform. No, I think it is Circle Breaker, and here's... Wait, no, am I getting... No, I'm getting it confused with the next scene with Circle Breaker. So let's not jump ahead. Let's just keep in mind that this guy could be Circle Breaker. It's he's an agent of the eel. That's how he introduces himself. And Meese said he seemed like a soldier out of uniform. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I agree with you guys. It wasn't clear whether or not it was Circle Breaker. I, I I defaulted to the fact I thought it was. Sure. That's understandable though. But that's totally understandable. But I agree. It is a question mark. Okay. So they're sharing a table together. And the agent tells Ralik that Turban Orr is now hunting the eel's agents, of which, of course, he is one, and will now be harder to reach. And I think that's really the point that he's trying to deliver. The eel is also very much in approval of Ralik and Merlio's efforts on Cole's behalf. Yeah, it seems that uh, Cole is desired to be put back into a nobility you know, position as far as the eels concerned, this would be good for Darujistan. Right. We learned that at the end of last chapter that Cole wants his position back, but this is where we learned that the eel, what did he say though? Specifically, it's like, it's good for the council. Anybody who values integrity and honor in the council desires to have Cole back in place. So that's a, that's a pretty good motivating factor. What does Ralik say about Marilio? So the idea is that the eel knows about all of that going on. And so Ralik thinks Marilio has a big mouth and whoever this person is, is at the table says, no, it wasn't that person. And it wasn't you giving it away or anything like that. So, you know, how the eel got this information is very mysterious. Yeah. He, he says it was, it's the eels business, right? That's how he knows it wasn't Marilio. He just, he found it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I suspect magic is involved or a lot of eavesdropper. Remember, remember how Krupp described the eel as having like a thousand agents? Uh, as maybe did he the does. Poem, yeah. yeah, as did the poem. So maybe he does have a thousand agents and you just can't keep secrets from the eel. Wow. That's possible. That's crazy. Well, no, I'm just saying these guys were so careful. I mean, they're ha- I, I just, it's beyond my comprehension how the eel could figure it out. Well, I don't know, but we aren't we, you know, we're not privy to every moment of their lives. We only see the stuff that Erickson is showing That's us. That's true. And we right. actually don't have magic. So the agent delivers one more piece of vital information. He says that Turban Orr has tendered a contract with an assassin, which was very difficult to do given the circumstances. And that contract was to eliminate coal. And Ralik is like, uh-oh, who took the contract? And it was Ocelot, his clan leader. So the agent d- finishes his beer and departs. And immediately, Mies and Arilta, like kind of scurry over. And Ralik tells them to tell Marilio that our man's eyes are open. And then he, too, departs. If your clan leader takes an assignment to kill your friend, what are you honor bound to do? Well, I mean, if you're (laughs) going with what the Assassin Guild's going to want, are you supposed to just stand by and let that happen? Obviously. Or are you supposed to be involved in the, you know, the killing or just get out of the way? I don't think you're supposed to interfere with a contract. Yeah. (laughs) Period. I mean, I I would assume from the Guild's point of view, you're not supposed to get in the way. That's right. right? And I think if he does, it's going to be his head as on the chopping block next, I would imagine. But you know he doesn't like Ocelot. Uh-huh. We don't. We don't like Ocelot. 
Remember Ocelot's this whiny, complainy, little weasel of a man. A micromanager also. Definitely. And he's not that bright. I mean, how did he ever rise to power? You gotta wonder. Gotta play the game. He has to be skilled, because it's obviously not his brain. Anna, Amanda, Rake, and Baruch are, are at Baruch's place, sitting in front of a fire. And they're kind of sparring about the sharing of information. Like... Baruch seems a little bit unhappy with the information that Anamanda Rake is giving him. And Anamanda Rake's like, well, you know, you hold your secrets pretty close to the chest, too. And that's kind of where we begin. Both of them know, I guess Anamanda Rake told Baruch that the Amas has entered the barrow of the Jagged Tyrant. And, of course, we're talking about Tool. And Baruch's really actually kind of upset about that. He's like, why did you just let them do this? You know, That's a viable question, and you, if you ask me. Right, and so they get into the conversation about whether or not they're going to be able to succeed in doing what they're setting out to do to free the tyrant. Then it gets into a conversation about what Lassine's style of attack is in this situation. You know, why yeah. they're bringing the Jaghut out. And the concept is that Darujistan and uh, Anamander Rake and his people will fight so hard to prevent the Jaghut from destroying them that when they win, uh, Rake will be diminished, and that's when Lucene will come in and charge, basically. That was that information was given to us in a previous chapter, mm-hmm. I think two chapters ago. Like, Lorne kind of thought about this for us. Mm-hmm. But Beric's finding about it. You know, this is Rake telling him this. That's you know? true, Let's talk about the destruction of the city, because that's what Baruch is worried about. Um, I always had the impression that Animator Rake was just, like, impulsive and brash and cavalier and devil-may-care. But in this section, he goes into depth on his thought processes of the Malazan Empire and the scene and her motivations. And he seems to be incredibly insightful, like... He's never talked about his thoughts and his plans and how he evaluates things, but to me, he's just spot on. He hasn't had a lot of peer time, if you know what I mean, like buddy chat time. Yeah. This is kind of like Baruch is the only person he's talked to, really, except for Crone. Which, and he kind of considers Baruch like on par or, yeah, a peer. A peer, for sure. Yeah. Um, do you remember it was uh, what, the last time I think they had a conversation? We had we had speculated that maybe if Anamander Rake and Baruch became friends, he would be more concerned about whether or not Darujistan would fall to Lassine or the city got destroyed. And here we're finding out that Baruch, Baruch is concerned that his city is going to get destroyed in the aftermath of that tyrant getting released. And Rake is like, no, I'm not going to let that happen. It's not. I want the city to remain intact and out of Lassine's reach. That's his stated goal for Jerusalem. He also added on, he said, that alchemist is victory. And that really kind of struck an interesting note with me because, like I said before, it just seems like he was reactionary or dealing with things one at a time. or He just didn't seem to put a lot of thought into his actions. But here it's very clear that he's has this surgical... He's a thinking man. Yeah, and he has a plan. And it's not just, yeah. let's get it done. It's like, let's get it done with style. Do you remember how Caladam, Brood, and Crone spoke of Rake as being kind of... Uh, indifferent about the people beneath him and like causing disaster because he just doesn't care. Yeah. Well, like uh, he's starting to care, right? At least in this particular case, he seems to care. Um, But I I still wonder if it's just because he thinks Baruch is cool. 
Okay, so Baruch is also concerned about treachery. He thinks that maybe Rake didn't act on the Emas getting into the Barrow for that reason. I thought that was so churlish. It just seemed kind of petty to accuse him of that. Well, it was in a response to Rake saying, I wouldn't have joined with you otherwise if I didn't want to make you know keep Darujistan intact. Or that if I, if I wanted the city destroyed, I could have done that already. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> but, you know, you're right. It, it was a snapback for sure by Baruch to attack Rake by questioning his loyalty to him, you know. Right. But Erickson needed to explain this to us about Rake's character, which is why Baruch said that oh, in the first place. Yeah, right? sure. That, so you, sure. You, you've, you've mentioned stuff like deus ex machina, right? Machina. In the past, Philip, well, this is an example of that. Erickson needed to explain something to us about Rake's character, and so that's how that's how he got it to happen. All right, fair enough, fair enough. And, you know, to be to be fair, I, maybe Baruch is probably, like, really on edge that everything's falling apart and he's doomed. Yes, yes, he's totally concerned. <laughs> and he, the guy that's supposed to help him was just like, yeah, I let him go in. <laughs> Yeah, I, they got into the barrow. Yeah, I let them do it. I was like, whatever, no big deal. Yeah, I guess Baruch has a has has a, has a right to be a little testy right now. He's concerned. He's concerned. Oh, by yeah. the way, yeah, yeah, they're gonna release this giant, this global menace, and uh, we're the closest <laughs> city. <laughs> Rake answers the question of treachery by saying that if he committed treachery, it would breed treachery within the ranks of the Tistiandi and any one of his. Any number of his associates would just wipe him out and remove him, kill him. And who are they, Baruch wants to know. And so he starts naming them off, you know, Kaladin Brood, you know. Wouldn't you want to know? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, right? It's like, well, who could rival you in power, Mr. Anamander Rake? And he's like, well, yeah. Well, lots of people. Who else? Tell me more. Tell me more, Yule. Uh, he he mentions dragons or a dragon. He mentions he mentions a a woman's name, but we've met this woman before, or we've encountered her name before. She was listed among those present at the binding of the tyrant. Silana, I think is I don't know how to pronounce There's it. Solana. I'm gonna go with Solana because it sounds prettier. Okay, that's fine. Um, the red dragon. The red dragon that lives in Moonspawn might just decide to kill Rake because of treachery. So. Right. Yeah. It, it, well, I mean, like you said, it, it falls down and all his people would see the thing that he did you know, to betray and then they wouldn't trust him. And right. these are a people that <laughs> it's hard to spur them to action anyway. <laughs> it sounds like that would do it, though. Yeah. And so he fears them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he expressed concern about his four mage assassins. It's like, well, they for one could do it. Caladan brewed this dragon, and he said the list goes on. Hmm. Well, if you think about it, if you live in this hierarchical society, kind of like they do, and you've been in that position for like 80,000 years, and there's no room for upward mobility, geez. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they're the type, though. It seems like, okay, so. Anamander Rake describes the Tistiandi in this kind of tragic way. And remember, we were talking about Decembre in the previous chapter and tragedy in general. But he describes them as like on the route to extinction. And they just, they're just disinterested in life. They don't care anymore. It's like they have ennui really, really badly. And they're just going to go extinct. So I don't know if they would any of them 
really feel like stepping up as a power grab. That whole right? yeah, that whole description is really kind of like sad, melancholy, uh, depressing. You're like, yeah, it is. It's very complicated too, and I don't. Uh, whatever. Yeah, he just seems like it's it's like you've lost the will to live, and like you have no passion for life, but you go on anyway out of and they and they follow Anamander Rake because they're just kind of like okay well it's, I guess we can do that yeah and he tries to find ways to kind of get a little spark of interest or a life in him which I think that's very noble of him to do but it's not really working they're dying alongside the people in Caladan Brood's army they're dying in the mud and in the filth of the forest just like men and all of those men fear them and he said it's better to die with a sword in their hand than to just wither away or whatever. Yeah, he said it really well. He said that Tisty Andy point of view is one of disinterest, stoicism, and quiet, empty despair. God, that sounds so sad. <laughs> like, I thought they were cool, but now I don't want to be one. Oh, they are cool. They're very cool, but they're, they have just this very, they live a long time, man. They live a long time. Yeah. Did you guys catch that uh, Animander Rake described his people as living for not hundreds of years or dozens of years, but thousands of years, right? Yeah. And then at some point in time, Brook assumes that Animander Rake is 20,000 years old. And he's like, I can't even imagine. <laughs> but that's only one-fifth of his lifespan. All right, let's get back onto it because this conversation between these two men goes into kind of a big circle and they get, excuse me, they get back to the topic of the Barrow and the Talana Mas getting inside. This Yule is where it's explained. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, they're, they're explaining how... All right, so Lucene's whole idea is to raise the Jaghut Tyrant, and in doing so, it's going to cause so much death and destruction that Darujistan, if it still stands afterwards, will be so severely diminished. Anamander Rake and his forces will be so severely diminished that the Malazans should be able to go and just waltz right on in. And should Darujistan fall to the Jaghut Tyrant, it will be so diminished that Lucene should be able to go wipe out. And uh, that's her plan. She's all force all the time. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a smart plan. Um, I'm not sure about that last part of it, though. It sounded like you explained the same thing twice. Well, what I'm saying is if the Jagged Tyrant lives, it's diminished. And so the Malazans can come in and take over. Well, basically, right. no, matter, way. no matter who wins in that confrontation, it's a win-win for Lucene. It is. Yes, exactly. Uh, which Rake points out that that is when it's going to come down to the Torud Cabal. They're going to have to clean up the mess either way. Whether Rake lives or dies in fighting this tyrant, it's going to come down to the Cabal. All right. So Rake now asks... Baruch, tell me more of this tyrant. And he says, well, funny you should ask. Come with me. And he leads him downstairs to a place where there's a cot. And on that cot, there rests Mammoth. And Rake is like, oh, you mean the historian? Oh, yes. Very cynical man. 
Yeah, and this is where uh, it mentions how old Rake is because uh, Baruch is like, man, he's probably had a long time to read the historian's writings, you know, and he's bored, you know, he's got some, got to do something. And that's yeah. where he talks about, you know, a life spanning 20,000 years. What an understatement, though. Yeah, yeah, for what sure. What an understatement. Well, it also comes out at this point that Mamet is a high priest of Drek. Now that is an eye-opener. Yeah, I mean, well, one, I never suspected it, but two, it just... And did you guys look up Drek at the back of the book? Yeah, of course. Of course you did. It was like, well, it's like, I'm sorry, I have to go look it up. Cause oh, I, I did not. So can you tell me, Philip, what uh, it was? Oh, yeah, let me work on that. Yeah, the Worm of Autumn, uh, sometimes called the Queen of Disease, also yeah. named Poliel. Yeah. Which is the Mistress of Pestilence. I'm like, why would you worship somebody like that? Is is it? I thought I thought it was just see also Poliel, as in maybe they're related or something. I didn't actually look up Poliel. Uh, Mistress of Pestilence, Queen of Disease. Maybe they, maybe it's the same was, person. Maybe it's they're different. I don't know. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we make that assumption, I'm gonna uh, just let me look at it real quick because I think they're different people. Okay. Well, Poliel has a um, an entry for sure. Mistress of Pestilence, and then Drek is the Worm of Autumn, sometimes the Queen of Disease, see Poliel. Maybe they are the same person. I don't know. Okay, maybe. Who knows? Uh, apparently, that's a very real possibility. Okay, please go on, Philip. Oh, I think I'm actually done there, other than uh, that was a, that was a shock. I mean, it no, I don't think any of us saw that coming. We knew he had some no. sort of power. He was a historian. No, we, I thought he was a historian. Yeah. Maybe it was just some guy. Well, so is this something you keep secret? Like, you don't want people to know you're a worshiper of Drek? Maybe, yeah. Mistress of Disease or whatever. Yeah. Worm of Autumn. Um, very possible, yeah. But it also doesn't seem like it's very, you know, it's not important to his identity, right? He's a historian. He's probably lived a long time. He probably knows the full history of Darugistan because he's lived a long time. Sure. Right? Sure. Or at least he knows he knows a lot of it firsthand. Um. Uh, okay, but it's also told to us that Driss is his warren. So he's obviously a wizard. He's obviously also a high priest of Drek, and he's a historian. So it's all he's all of those things. It's a complicated thing. And he's lying there in a coma. Explain that to me, please, one of you. What a coma is? <laughs> or why this is dangerous? Yes. <laughs> They're no, please, worried about... tell, tell me about a coma. It's a coma, not a comma. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so he, so, so Mamet, right? That's who it is? Yeah. Okay, Mamet is in a coma. And the he coma. was, and he's in a coma. And he was investigating the Jagged Tyrant, trying to figure out its name and all that information that he could bring back to Baruch. But he got attacked somehow and is in a coma. And in such a weakened state, the Jaghut Tyrant might be able to take control of him. And this is just the type of person with this warren that most people don't know about. Uh, taking control would be very, very helpful. And then who is it that asks whether or not the Tyrant is able to enslave a goddess? Suggesting that not only could he take control of Mammoth, but he could also, through Mammoth, take control of the hype. What, uh, Drek? Hey, this is exactly the kind of thing Tool was warning us about when he said why he was chosen is because he had no connection to his race or his or a bone caster or something because 
of the threat of if a bone caster got taken over by the Jagat, they would challenge the gods, whatever. You know, it would be horrible. Like, mm-hmm. And this is exactly what's happening. Aren't you guys scared? I'm, I'm afraid for Mammoth, I, definitely. To me, this is foreshadowing, and that's probably what's going to happen because that's the same thing Tool told us not to, not to do. Yeah, for sure. You're absolutely correct. So, um, however, did you guys notice that the, the cause of all of this has to do with the Telen anti-magic field and that auditorial sword? Like, oh, somehow yeah. that, that's responsible for trapping him there. And I, I, like, I guess it, he used his warrant to get in and do his investigation, but now he's trapped there. And Rake says if, if he's not quick, that tyrant is going to imprison his soul. That's right, yeah. I couldn't. I forgot to that specific, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Man, that is worrying. That is worrying. And apparently, he's been in this coma for a couple of days. Mm. So yeah, I think it's just scary. And he won't be able to leave until the sword is out of there. Until the moss is out of there, and yeah, then he'll withdraw. be able to wake up. And then, hopefully, the tyrant's not up yet. <laughs> yeah, I say that's a that's a risk I would not be willing to take. Well, remember the concept was the sword being out would slow down the waking of the tyrant. So, hope if you're mammoth and you're looking at a time to get out. It might slow Mammoth down, too. It might, yeah. Yeah, it seems to do that, for sure. <laughs> yeah, not good, not good. I don't know, I don't know, guys. This is like, when I read this, I'm starting to get scared. <laughs> because... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, okay, but let me ask you a question, then. Because I, I, too, am beginning to worry, right? I'm, I'm beginning to worry. We're getting evidence, we're getting suggestions. In the last chapter, or possibly two chapters, I don't remember... Tool had expressed his concern. He was like, I know the name of this guy. We should not release him. Right. And now we're seeing that like, oh, he's going to, he might very well take control of a high priest of Drek and possibly have the goddess enslaved. I mean, yeah, I'm starting to worry as well, Philip. Dude, enslave the goddess of disease. (laughs) I'm just, ah, man, I'm just, I, I have the willies already. The worm of autumn. Yes. Okay. So here's my question. Why didn't Rake stop the Emos from getting into the Barrow? I have wondered that also, but I thought, did he mention something about he kind of wants the Jagat to be released? No, he didn't say want. He said there's going to be a fight either way. I did, see, I did hear that, but what he's saying is it's better if the Jagat gets released now while I'm here and I can deal with it, not 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now when I'm gone. Okay, that's, that's right. pretty solid. That's pretty solid. Okay. I was confused because it seemed to me like, whew. Okay, thank you, Philip. That, that's perfect. That's an explanation that I missed from the reading. Thank you. Yay. And in the end, Decembre Fend. Decembre. Yes. Who, as we, let's remind our listeners, Decembre is uh, the Lord of Tragedy. So feeling very exposed, Circle Breaker passes in front of a tenement where sits a woman smoking a pipe. No, no, she has a pipe. It's filled with whatever leaf it is that she's about to smoke. She takes a piece of kindling out of a lit brazier and she drags on her pipe and lights it. And then she throws the match essentially into the road at Circle Breaker's feet. That is a signal. So he takes a he takes a turn and he heads the three blocks to the Phoenix Inn. So there's two women kind of standing about the inn door. Yeah, the Phoenix Inn's door. Well, before we go there, right? 
Okay. So this old woman, I think this is the third time we've seen this old woman. She's been described before. Is is that your thing? That's not specifically it, but go on. Oh, well, nothing is that she's been mentioned multiple times. It was chapter five. It was again in chapter 11. And now she's mentioned twice in this chapter and uh, has never been given a name, but... I think it's fair to say that this is the woman that sits on the steps in front of the tenement where Crocus lives. Mammoth lives. Yeah, yeah. Something like this is their This is their tenement. So when Circle Breaker nears the Phoenix Inn, there are two women standing by the door talking to each other and laughing. Circle Breaker does this thing with his scabbard where he like kind of puts his thumb in his belt and then forces the scabbard against the wall and just drags it along the wall for a brief moment. And then... Let's it go, and then continues on his way to meet a th- another contact for the evening. These women that are standing in front of the Phoenix Inn, these are none other than Mies and Arilta. We find out that it's Mies's turn, so she heads off. She backtracks where Circle Breaker had come from, and she gets to the tenement, and when she crosses in front of the woman smoking the pipe, the woman with the pipe dumps the contents out on the cobbles. And this signal is picked up by Meese, who heads into, heads into an alley, and then through a door that's open for her, and then another door, and then up some stairs. This all happens very, very quickly. All right, so that wasn't Circle Breaker in the first part. Couldn't have been. Yeah. Could not have been Circle Breaker. So it was just one of the other... Okay, so tell me why you say that, you all. Tell me why you say that. Well, because we're going to the Phoenix Inn, at least for a moment. Well, but he doesn't... And it was in the Phoenix Inn where that person was sitting already. He's also in uniform right now. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that, too, also. He has a sword belt on and yeah. et cetera, yeah. and he's walking through town in his uniform. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so um, would you guys kindly turn to page 144? Oh, that was a while ago. Yeah, chapter 5, all the way back at the end of chapter 5. It's the old woman. All right. Would you please look down... Um, let's see from the bottom one, two, three, mm-hmm. three paragraphs up. Well, she, she wrapped her pipe against her sole of her shoe and sparks rained onto the cobbles. Yeah. Okay. Now turn back to the page that we were just on. Yes. Yeah, so the same thing. Tapped her heel of her shoe and sparks rained onto the cobble. Now, do you remember what was going on in chapter five when she tapped out the contents of her pipe onto the uh, cobbles? Was this when Crocus was running for his life? Yeah, running from the Tistiandi. Yeah, I remember. This is yeah. when he like goes into Mammoth's office and then goes yeah. out the window and all that yes. stuff. Okay, yeah. Yes. So she's like, "Oh, the the coast is clear." Is that what that's a sign for? I don't the think doors so. Doors are open. It's, it's a signal, though, right? It's right. a signal. Okay, so like I'm suspicious that she saw that Crocus was in trouble and she she sent the signal out. And I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't know the machinations, but like she was there and observing and it's the exact same words, man. It's the exact same words. Like she was sending the signal then too. We just didn't know it. She was helping. Like they, they assisted Crocus in some capacity. They must've. Didn't blow your minds though, huh? No, exa- no, I like that. Mind. It's exactly blew the kind of thing you expect, you know. Um, kind was, of, yeah. It was kind just of, an yeah. artful sentence back then, right? Now but you, if you see go it. Back, and, yeah. If you go back and look, it's like holy smokes, that stuff is like kind of obvious. Yeah, so, sorry, buddy. I, I didn't poop my pants because I caught that too. 
Oh, good. You actually went back and read it and was like, oh, she sent the signal then. I did. I good. read the exact same thing. That's how I knew it was, yeah, page 144. Nice. Nice. Very nice. All right. Well, anyway, um, uh, do we have anything to add? Because these, these, this section, these two sections go by really fast. Oh, just we did just one thing. Yeah, it was Mises' turn to lead, but Arilta was following her. Right. So Arilta is backup, whatever that means. Okay, so Crocus and Absalar are at Mammoth's, but he's not around, and it appears that he hasn't been around for a couple of days. The um, ooh, the flying monkey creature, Moby. Like a- Absalar fed him some grapes. Moby, thank you. Mo- Moby hasn't been fed in a long time and is like kind of cranky about it. But Absalar fed him, and Crocus is like, "Huh, he hasn't been here for a while." And then there's a knock at the door, and in comes Meese. He's like, Meese, what are you doing here? And she's like, oh, hey, by the way, the Daarls are going to hang you because you killed that guard. And Crocus looks at Absalar, and who used to be sorry and who did the murder. <laughs> and she's like, you, oh, you don't remember. So they have Crocus's name and description, and they want to hang him for the killing of the guard. And Mies is like, we got we to gotta do something about this, so we're just going to wait till nightfall, and then we're going to get up onto the rooftops, and we're going to get out of here. And Absalar, is introdu- Absalar introduces herself to Mies, and so all that's out in the open. Well, okay, so here's where the, the follow-up is, the backswing, wherever you want to call it, where Mies says, oh, well, you know, we'll just head up to the roof. And she looks at uh, Absalar, and she says, well, you know, I guess you can handle yourself, it sounds like. She's like, yeah, yeah, I can. So point is, it's not probably that easy just to go like house jumping and from Eve to Eve and all over the rooftops. And Meese is a large, beefy woman. She's like, oh, well, yeah, we'll just, you know, get out on rooftop. So she's apparently a pretty competent rogue herself. Um, You pointed out, Philip, a long time ago that you thought that Meese and Arielta and everybody at the Phoenix Inn was in on it. And I think this is just more confirmation that you're correct. That, yeah, they're all rogues. You had also suggested that Krupp had maybe commented to them when he had entered a long time ago that he was being followed. And maybe that's why they had been so interested in Sari when she entered the Phoenix Inn. And just more more suggestions that that's very likely. They're a tight group. Very tight group, yes. They're all watching out for each other. Now, are they agents of the eel? Just friends of Krupp and the others, or are they part of the guild? Could be both. Could be all. Uh, it could be all three. Yeah. yeah, it could be all three. None of that stuff is. Um, what do you call it? It's, Mutually uh, exclusive. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly. That's exactly it's the, the secret phrase society. I get. <laughs> there was a moment when Meese is letting Crocus know that you know he's going to be executed for the Daarl guard being killed. Crocus says, "I can't believe she she sold me out," and. Immediately, Absalar, sorry, knows that this is Shalice, the person that he accidentally flubbed out when he was suggesting names for her. Very astute observation on her part. Yeah, she's a smart girl. She's not that Fisher girl still, you know? Okay, I'll point out, she also noticed that the door had been unlocked when Crocus was like, okay, so maybe he lost his keys. And she's like, the door was unlocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she is a she is an astute observer. She is what we would call perspicacious. Oh, I would have said a smart cookie. 
well, we'd both be right. And she doesn't even have any memory that's telling her to remember these things. Like, you learn to be observant. It's not necessarily, like, a born skill. But she's got it in the back of her head somehow to to notice these things. She's like, she also mentioned the stabler. Mies is like, hey, did you guys talk to anybody? And Crocus is like, no, we didn't talk to a soul. And Absalar says, we stabled a horse. Remember, she doesn't have any memory, right? Or just barely glimpses of memory. I'm sorry. I don't remember what you said. Yeah, exactly. So literally, her cup is half empty. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Just outside, Surratt is watching the tenement building. And now, as a reminder, Surratt is Rake's number one mage assassin. So one of the people that he fears. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, he doesn't fear her, um, but he considers well, you know her, I mean. he considers her capable of supplant a rival. Yeah. So- Absolutely capable of power wise, she's an equal or nearly. She doesn't think she's an equal. She thinks she is second to him in in fatal in death count or whatever. However, she assesses that. Nevertheless, she's watching the tenement. She has identified Irilta down below who's doing backup duty but she hasn't determined if the woman smoking the pipe is in on it but anyway she decides that she's going to replace Irilta and take her place and then she's going to wait for Mies and then she's going to kill the coin bearer and decides to be patient about the whole thing because patience is ever rewarded is what she says and was this already a plan that Anamanda Rake has like put in motion or is this something it new to must us? be no, it has to be it has to be related to Rake because Rake told Surratt how to identify the coin bearer mm. by looking for Opon. Mm-hmm. She said that she didn't know that Opon was involved back when they had had the chase in chapter five, mm-hmm. but that once Rake pointed out, "Hey, look for Opon, and you will find the coin bearer," she had no problem locating him. Right. So that was, that was something that we got wrong also. We had been suspicious that the Tistiandi were aware that Opon was in the game back then because of that chase, because of the things that they had said, like, too uh, awry to be natural and somebody with a sense of humor and stuff like right. that. Uh, but it turns out that at least Surratt was unaware. The other two Tistiandi may have known. But Surratt well, Rick said early in this chapter when he was talking to Baruch that he was completely unaware that Opon and Shadow Throne were had a, had a stake in the game. Right, right. So he he said he didn't have any idea, and he chased well, well, he chased chased them both off, I guess. Not really. Uh, yes, in last chapter he did. Mm. So he did. It was a setback for Opon, I suppose. But they did describe. Yeah, yeah, they did describe why Opon is involved in this game. Like, what did he have to win? What were the stakes? Well, being the jester, so he just likes this massive conflagration of power, he said, because it's at, at those high-stakes games when things really get interesting. And so it's like Opon tries to create these convergences because he thinks it's fun. That's interesting. I remember the word whirlwind. Yeah. And in association with all of this power. And I'm like, that is kind of accurate. That That is kind of what it's like. It's turning into this maelstrom of power, and it's very, very messy. But apparently this is Opon's home turf. Well, didn't Philip, didn't you suggest that Opon was a uh, a newer god or a younger god? You know, like it w- yeah, but it's, children it's, type thing? 
It has been confirmed. Yeah. 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 But I think we asked a long oh, time yes. ago, what was Opon's stake in this game, or why is he doing this? And I think his motivations are completely, I wouldn't say self-serving, but for self-entertaining. I think it's very likely, but we also have to remember that they got into this whole thing because they were trying to thwart Shadow Throne. I, but I don't think there's any animosity there. I think they're just they're the they're the people that just like to mess with other people and get and get a chuckle out of it. Yeah, that may be true. That may be true. I don't know that Rake's opinion of them is entirely accurate, though. I mean, I'm willing to I'm willing to take his word for it for now, but I'm going to wait and see because I have a feeling their actual motivations are going to be spelled out even more clearly than they are now. Oh, okay. It's a it's it's a guess, but I mean, like, I wouldn't be satisfied if this book ended without us actually understanding more about Opon. Mm, how Erickson? Yeah, but I mean, come on, you got to It's like the the breadcrumbs that lead, you know. Onward. Oh, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. It's just, um, yeah, I think you might there there may be. A, Opon may have a real interest and investment in this whatever conflagration of power, but it sounds to me like he just likes to mess with people. And this is this is when he has the most fun, is when there's the most power people there, and he gets to upset them, you know what I mean? It looks like it's going to happen that way, too. All right, Marilio and Krupp arrive at the Phoenix Inn. But Krupp is way more interested in eating and getting drinks than he is to report to Baruch. They speak about Ralik and Marilio's plan because, as you guys remember, it was revealed that Krupp is completely aware of the plan. He used this to distract Marilio on the way back to Darujistan, and it worked. But anyway, uh, essentially, Marilio's like, we don't need your help. We have it under control. Stay out of it. And Krupp is like, oh, but I would only be assistance to you. There's something about this. I mean, there's a reason for it, but it doesn't make it doesn't on the surface level. It doesn't make sense that he was like, we have to get back to the Sorry, Krupp was like, we have to get back to the city. This is really important. We have to go tell Baruch immediately, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, oh, no, let's go to the Phoenix Inn. <laughs> yes, he was in a huge hurry. Uh, in last chapter, and now it seems like the hurry is over. So was his motivation right. just to get back to the comforts of home? And I don't think that is it. I no, I think the magnitude of the information he possesses was something he would want to deliver immediately, but now it seems like he's dragging his feet on purpose. Do yes, you think that he knew that Rake and Baruch were having a conversation with each other during that time? Ooh, that's possible. That's possible. Um, I don't know if there was any clue to that, but that's just my suggestion right now. Hmm. Krupp, this is the funniest guy. He's like, oh, I, 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 Marilio's, I thought we weren't supposed to go see Baruch. Oh, well, I wouldn't want to have a problem having a conversation yeah. without having my thirst quenched. Yeah, was, yeah, he's, yeah. he's afraid his, his throat is going to be parched and therefore his voice might crack yeah. during the delivery. Yeah. And that's, that's his excuse. It, it's this ridiculously humorous excuse that's just, um, I don't know, it's candy. The things that come out of Krupp's mouth when he's being... Um, I suspect that you're right. Yule that it might be the conversation with Baruch and Rake that's happening right now but it may on a more general level just be a timing issue mm -hmm. and it may have been Erickson's timing issue you know mm -hmm. not not Krupp's but either way like I'm, I'm into it I thought this was a, a real it was good it was I enjoyed the scene and we got to get a little bit more insight into both Marilio and Krupp so 
I'm good with it. So Murillo is like looking at his clothes and looking down at himself. And he's like, ah, I need, I need to get cleaned up. And remember he's a dandy and his appearance is everything to him. So he's probably very uncomfortable with camping and stuff. So it seems like he should have been the one in a hurry to get back, but he loves Cole. So he doesn't want, you know, whatever. Anyway. So he departs via the kitchen, not the front door. And when he does so, there's Circle Breaker. And Circle Breaker says, I am an agent of the Eels. I have a message for you. It regards Turban Ore. You know, how did Circle Breaker know he was going to leave, one, that he was there, and the two, that he was going to leave through the kitchens? Huh? Who cares? Isn't it awesome that Circle Breaker knew to be standing by the back door exactly right then? And if you look in his last section, he was like off... He was heading to the lakefront. He had another contact to make. It was redundant, but it was the orders given to him by the eel, so he was going to do it anyway. So did he, and so he do that and come back? Here he is. No, this is the redundant order. This is why it gets confusing about the agents. Okay. Because if the first agent had been Circle Breaker talking to Ralik Nam, then he would be fully aware that he was telling the same information to Marilio, his associate, assuming that they weren't able to get together and talk, mm-hmm. right? So the information is redundant, and he knows it. So maybe it was Circle Breaker, and maybe all he did was go and put on his sword and then walk down the street mm-hmm. because he needed it for the signal. That's possible, too. Either way, the last time we saw him, he said he was going to go meet his last contact, redundant though it may be, mm-hmm. and then he expects to be dead any minute now mm-hmm. because Turbinor's agents are like hunting in earnest. I love circle breaker, man. Circle I, I mean, breaker. I asked the same question you did, Philip, like, how did he know? But like, ultimately I don't care. I'm just so happy that Marilio goes out the back door and there's circle breaker. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. If he'd gone out the front door, it'd have been like, Oh yeah. Big whoop. Well, I'm not going to go back right. and reread it, but you notice, like, we talked about this being a, the rogue's den, right? They just take liberties with the place. Like, Rallet goes out uh-huh. through the kitchens and comes back. Mm-hmm. Marilio goes out through the kitchens. and Maybe that's just their MO. They always enter through the front door and always leave through the kitchen. From Circle Breaker's point of view, it's definitely a better place to have a conversation than outside the front door, right? But why Marilio went out the kitchen, I don't know. I'm just glad that he did. Ralik is up on the rooftops, and very importantly, it is now dark. He is looking to get to Ocelot before Ocelot can fulfill his contract to kill Cole. He stops to check a pouch that Baruch gave him years ago for good service, and it is a pouch full of auditorial dust. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. It's a red dust. And Baruch had warned him all those years ago, don't let it touch your skin. It causes changes that are unpredictable. And Ralik is like, what kind of changes? And he's rubbing it into his skin. In his face, <laughs> in his hands. Uh, he empties the, all of the contents of the bag on his skin, basically, and turns the bag inside out. Yes, and then puts it back in his belt because it has kind of an area of effect. effect and... He, didn't, he wasn't obviously able to rub it on all of his skin, but he's used the entire contents of the bag, hoping that it will be enough to overcome Ocelot's magery and magic. Because as we recall, Ralik is the only assassin that doesn't use magic. They're otherwise dripping in the stuff, 
and he doesn't even know if he's going to be able to find Ocelot because he might already be invisible. Right. Well, I just want to point out, it, it doesn't say it's auditorial dust, but I think that's a good, um, a good deduction. You're, uh, you, I assume you're correct. Uh, I just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the magic deadening effects of this red dust and blah, Something, blah, blah. So, but yeah. literally, if, yeah. if the high alchemist says don't get it on your skin. <laughs> and you rub it all over your skin. Yeah, I guess it's a do or die situation, so you might as well do it. I think that's very fair. Okay. Yeah, I think that's very fair. We know who he's looking for, but where is he heading? I think he's having to do a little guesswork here, and I think... He assumes that Ocelot is going to be waiting at the gate for Cole to come in. Right, out by Worrytown. Right, out by Worrytown. Well, he assumes that's the gate where Cole's going to... The point is, he's he's actually having to play these games of intuition on where Ocelot is going to be. Because I guess he was given the information that Ocelot was waiting for Cole to come back. Well, I think he just made that assumption as well, that if it was in, if he was in Ocelot's shoes, he would try to take him out before he even entered the gate. Right. So he would get a vantage point whereby he could see Cole coming and then take the shot from there. And where does he determine that the best place to do that would be? Did he say Kroll's Tower? Which is where we started all of this with Talo Krafar mm -hmm. and Crocus back in the very beginning of the Darujistan book. That's right. And that's where ta ta uh, Tal... Ta what? What's his name? Talo Krafar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's where he died, right? Yeah, he died. He started there and he ended there. Um, so we're going full circle. Ooh. So now I wonder, what does Circle Breaker's name mean? I don't know. I wonder if it's relevant to what's happening right now. Um, but either way, it looks like the story is going full circle for Darujistan. We have an assassin returning to Kroll's Belfry. I assume something something insane is going to happen on Kroll's Belfry that has gonna. It's got to be relevant to Kroll, right? Because Kroll was semi summoned back into the world by Tallow dying on the Belfry. I don't know. Like I'm curious what's going to happen. I just don't know. All right. So that ends this. That ends this section. Um, d one question though, before we move to the very very end, do you think it's fair to say? based on the reading of this section, that Ralik Nam is suffering from the same kind of crisis and confidence that Perrin and Lorne are suffering from? I, I think it's been touched upon less overtly that he's looking at his own future and it looks dim and dark and hopeless. and it, it, Like there's no choices left to him? Yeah. And remember how Perrin described life in the last chapter as being like an attempt to just attain any kind of control whatsoever. And Lauren said basically the same thing, that it was like this illusion of control that people had in their lives. And mostly nobody's got that kind of control. And now we've got Ralik, who is saying at the end that justice has to mean something. It must. When you put your life on the line, you have to have a belief that, you know, it's for something. Even Animander Rake says that, you know, if he goes down, he wants to do it in defense of Darujistan. He wants it to stay standing. He doesn't right. want it under Lysine's control, the Malazan's control. These are the things you do to pump yourself up <laughs> when you are uh, facing very, very poor odds. I think there's a paradox here when it comes to talking about Ralik, and it, we've kind of touched on it a bit in the past, but... I mean, here is somebody who apparently has kill kills people for a living. Although we've never seen him do that, he killed somebody else 
to play a game, right? So he doesn't have a lot of moral compunction about ending somebody's life, but here he's got this huge sense of protection for his friends. Uh, he's got a paternal instinct for the coin. Well, I think he's trying to right a wrong. You think so? He's trying to yeah, fix it. Absolutely. I think that's what he means by justice. It has to mean something. He's trying to right a wrong. Like Simtal stole, f basically killed Cole and all but act. Well, I know, right? that, but that's that's kind of what I'm getting at is that it wasn't a wrong against him. It was just a wrong against somebody he knows and is on good terms with. And the level of effort and the risk he's going through just tells the story of somebody with a much higher moral code. I think he's also kind of desperate. It was stated earlier when he was returning from the slaughter of the guild by the Tisty Andy that he felt like he didn't have a lot of choices left in his life, yeah. that he was going down the same path that Ocelot had gone down, and that he didn't have any more freedom. Like he was going down that path and he's like, this is the last act of humanity that I'm going to make is to help Cole. And now he's concerned that it may not mean anything because he may, the Cole may get murdered right before he can help him. Right. They're, they're trying to do this act. And he's like, please tell me that this is worth something. No, I, I agree. I agree. I just think there's a little bit of paradox there with his character that isn't, Either it's either underappreciated or it's underexplained at this point in time. Yeah, the paradox is that he's he's having to go against his own people, who are going against his own people. Well, that too. It's like it's signing his own death warrant, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, that's not even like getting into um, you know inner turmoil. This is just like on the surface, it's right there. And then you add all the other stuff in. This guy's really conflicted, for sure. Well, it's like if it's if he loses, he dies, right? But if he definitely, but if he if he wins and he succeeds, well, the the assassins guild is just going to rain down on him and kill him. So I think, he, and he has to understand that. I think so. I think so. But you know, maybe he would rather. I mean, I think to me this is pretty telling about his character that he would rather die and save Cole than not. You know, like you put it correctly, like he has he has one choice and it's to die and either save Cole or not. You know, he's either going to succeed or he's going to fail. But either way, he's dead. And if he if he just completely goes, Ooh. if he completely goes into the Assassin's Guild, it's the death of soul. Right. So that's suicide, essentially. Um, what about Circle Breaker? Because remember, he's kind of got the same decision. He he also decided long ago that he was going to shoulder the burden and it was going to kill him. And he knew he was going to die. And now we're getting a lot of evidence that suggests that Turban Orr's hunters are, are really close, really close. And he doesn't expect to live much longer. So, like, I'm wondering if it's just kind of a common theme throughout Daruzistan that all of these people are really struggling with meaning. It looks it looks pretty untenable. It looks like a it looks like tragedy. It looks like Decembre is raining right now and it's all going bad. It looks like we're headed for a car crash. <laughs> yeah, and the Malazans are going to come and just sweep on over. Yeah, when everybody's picking up the pieces, they're just going to stroll on in. <laughs> wow, the future does kind of look bleak. I think that you guys that wraps up chapter 17. Wow. So thank you for joining us for this episode. We will be back in two weeks' time. 
you can pay it. You can mark it on your calendar. Essentially, we we release on the 9th and the 23rd of every month until this book is finished, which will probably be sometime at the end of December or the beginning of January. And we're getting really close to the end. And me, for one, I for one, am really looking forward to it. This is starting to get super good. Yeah, chapter 18. Looking forward to it. We should be able to get that one out pretty quick too. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you in the next one. Have a good night. Thanks, guys.